I'm Rob Freeman, president of Kane Brothers. During this unprecedented and disorienting time, the team at Kane Brothers is conducting weekly interviews with leaders from throughout the healthcare industry for this special edition Industry Insights series. Our goal is to provide you and your organization with a wide array of views on the multifaceted dimensions, challenges, and responses to COVID-19. Transcripts are available on the Kane Brothers website. Please share your feedback with me or any of your Kane Brothers contacts, and thanks for listening. Uh, hello, I'm Dave Morlock, Managing Director in Kane Brothers Health System Advisory Practice. Joining me today for our interview series is James Hereford, President and CEO of Fairview Health Services. James, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Deb. So James, what level of demand for COVID-19 testing and then care are you seeing at Fairview and, and what's been your ability to meet that demand? Well, I think for testing, uh, it's been uh, difficult to meet the demand. I mean, ideally, we would have been uh, as a country, as a state, uh, as a healthcare system, uh, doing much more broad-based testing so that we actually understand the prevalence of the disease. It would have changed the way that we could have uh, done contact tracing and follow-up to limit the spread of the disease. Uh, we have struggled. Uh, in large part because of uh, supply side issues in terms of uh, reagents, but also testing medium and even swabs uh, to be able to do that. And so it's limited our ability to only the most uh, acute needs uh, to be able to do the kind of testing uh, that, uh, we would, that we need to do, but nowhere close to what we'd like to do. Now, hopefully that situation will continue to improve over time um, but at this point, some of the uh, early surveillance kind of testing approaches uh, are largely that opportunity has passed us. But it also impacts us in terms of being able to keep our healthcare workers uh, working, which is going to be a big part of this. And understanding uh, and being able to test quickly uh, with uh, both a, the PCR kind of test, but also to have a serum level test. Uh, will be critical for our ability to uh, maintain the workforce we're going to need as we still see the surge in front of us. Yeah. Are you seeing a material increase in the medical staff and, and other care providers contracting the virus? Uh, well, you know, I guess I would answer that in saying that everything is material, but we haven't seen a, a huge percentage yet. Uh, we've gone to universal masking, as many have. Uh, we have taken as many steps as we can to uh, protect our staff, uh, especially at this point in time when we're on the, still on the flat side of the epidemiological curve uh, to try to maintain uh, their uh, health because that's going to be crucial. So uh, thankfully, not yet. That's good. What, how about uh, the actual delivery of care for COVID-19? You, you mentioned being on the flat side of the epidemiological curve? Well, it's been uh, a gift to have the prep time. So, and I couldn't be prouder of my team. Uh, you know, Laura Reed, our chief nursing executive and chief operating officer, uh, Mark Walton, our chief medical officer, uh, Greg Bielman, who runs all of our uh, acute uh, side uh, settings, 
they, they have done a wonderful job of uh, doing the work to prepare to create more surge capacity. Uh, you know, we opened up uh, a, what we converted an LTAC into a COVID hospital in about seven days. So what's been gratifying to watch is the entire system coming together uh, and really doing things that I don't think we would have thought possible uh, prior to uh, the presence of a pandemic. And yet they've come together uh, and really done amazing things. So uh, at this point, we're still working uh, diligently, but a lot of the big lift uh, is uh, starting to become a little bit more behind us. And now it's in that uh, kind of strange waiting period uh, as we see the ramp up of cases. Yeah. What are the pressure points in the supply chain and, and with staffing that you're seeing through all of this? Well, there's several. Uh, you know, obviously, vents is the one that's the most uh, topical uh, in terms of having access to vents, and, uh, and they just are difficult to uh, get right now. Um, and as we continue to expand our, our uh, surge capacity, uh, vents is going to be uh, our are quite likely to be one of our rate limiters. Um, you know, all kinds of PPE, whether it's face shields uh, or it's uh, N95 masks or it's regular surgical masks or it's protective just uh, gowns, uh, surgical gowns, um, all are uh, in uh, shorter supply than would make anybody comfortable. Uh, and part of that is that uh, one of the disadvantages of being uh, a little later to the game in terms of uh, how this impacts uh, Minnesota and the Twin Cities uh, is a lot of that stock is going to the uh, places that are truly the hotspots right now, which, you know, Seattle, California, New York. Um, so uh, my hope is a lot of that's going to catch up uh, to uh, us as we start to get into the, the peak of this. We're also uh, continuing to develop uh, say, non-traditional uh, suppliers for a lot of this. Uh, and it's, you know, it's always difficult in the heat of this to separate, you know, what's real versus what's uh, a misrepresentation. But we're advantaged here because of our Medical Alley um, uh, consortium uh, of really being able to have a capability to vet uh, overseas suppliers, whether they're in China or elsewhere, uh, to make sure that what we're getting is going to meet the quality needs of the organization. How about capacity in the ICU? How, how are you planning uh, for those issues over time? Well, we're trying to create as much surge capacity as we can. Now, part of that was why uh, really as an entire state, we shut down elective cases um, about uh, a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, now, that obviously has a downside in terms of financial impact, but what it's uh, allowed us to do is free up a lot of ICU, existing ICU capacity. Uh, we've not consumed a lot of the PPE at the same rate that we would have. Um, but the bigger piece is not going to be the existing, it's going to be the surge capacity. So, as I mentioned, uh, the creation of a COVID hospital and converting an LTAC into that, you know, allowed us to uh, create another uh, 35 ICU beds. Uh, our surge planning, uh, let's just take the academic center at the University of Minnesota. Uh, we believe we're going to be able to uh, leverage a lot of uh, our existing space. Uh, some of it's going to be, you know, uh, surgical suites. Some of it's going to be uh, recovery suites. Some of it's going to be 
where we have negative pressure and, uh, you know, kind of inventive use. Uh, but we believe we're going to be able to expand pretty significantly that ICU capacity. The challenge is when we look at the models, um, that's good, still not sufficient, even as we collectively across the metro area, all the systems are doing this, it still won't be enough to meet the, uh, the level of surge that we uh, see predicted by the models. So you talked about the financial hit from uh, reducing elective cases. You talked about the difficulty in tracking down supplies and things like that. What are the additional resources that you're trying to secure, whether they're financial, supply-related, personnel-related, in order to, to address that expected surge uh, that will be coming in the next few weeks? Well, we've been working really closely with the state, and I think our state government has done a, a good job of um, implementing their uh, uh, incident command structure and looking to source uh, uh, supplies and really being a uh, significant assistance uh, for us in that. Um, we're still, uh, you know, I think as everybody is in healthcare, looking to see how the stimulus uh, is going to get uh, enacted administratively, um, but we're very active in that. Our state has taken some steps uh, to create some support for uh, the uh, kind of the financial side uh, for the preparation, so they've appropriated uh, money from the, the state legislature. Uh, so, you know, there are a number of things uh, underway. Uh, the challenge is, at the end of the day, none of that from a revenue uh, perspective is sufficient necessarily to cover the, uh, the, uh, the lost opportunity in terms of, the, you know, higher-end surgical cases that we're not doing. Um, but that's a problem everybody has. And, uh, I, you know, it's going to inevitably create a bit of a shakeup, I think, in our industry uh, as we get to the other side of this. Yeah, I think you're right. So with things like social distancing and stay-at-home orders, uh, there's definitely a unique dynamic in place now in terms of communicating. So how are you approaching your communications and the leadership of your staff and team during this time? Well, we're somewhat advantaged because we had some um, mechanisms in place, uh, you know, in that uh, overly tortured bio that you read uh, and the uh, work that we've done uh, around uh, lean management. So the fact that we have the kind of um, tiered management approach, that we have daily huddles, that when we enacted our incident command structure, it fit naturally into that, that's helped significantly in terms of the uh, overall um, ability of the organization to communicate. Now, what it's also uh, kind of elucidated for us, though, is the uh, some of our shortcomings that in normal times you wouldn't necessarily notice. But uh, the fact that email really is a poor uh, communication mechanism uh, to staff. So me writing uh, a message uh, and emailing it out uh, when you things are changing, uh, ever evolving, we continue to learn through this. Um, it just doesn't keep pace. So we're uh, working to implement some new uh, text-based and other a uh, little more facile, a little more dynamic kind of communication mechanisms, uh, so that we can make sure that our staff, uh, you know, we have 35,000 people that you know, 35,000 people are coming with us, really aware of what's going on. 
because there's so much that's not known um, and so much misinformation out there, uh, it's critical that we uh, have a much uh, tighter loop of communication and feedback with our staff. Uh, and that's really been um, highlighted as a gap. And credit to our IT teams who are really probably done uh, two years worth of work in the last uh, month and a half, but are really starting to stand up some capabilities that heretofore we just didn't have. Well, that's fantastic. So, so across um, all of these dimensions, what, what would you describe as, as your uh, early learnings uh, in this crisis, given that we're now three to four weeks into it? Well, one is, uh, you know, we kind of know, knew this already, but um, healthcare loves a crisis, right? We, we probably are at, a, are at our best uh, when things are really um, at a critical point. It's, That's a great uh, point. You know, it's, it's not often, it's not uh, unusual. You go into an organization, you start talking to them about their, their organization, and you ask them to, um, talk about a time they were extremely proud. Inevitably, it comes down to some emergent situation, um, a strike or uh, some, you know, other, uh, you know, for when I was at Stanford, it was when the uh, uh, airline went down at San Francisco uh, Airport and we had a number of, we had a mass casualty event. It's often those things that healthcare organizations cite is when they were at their best. Um, we get a lot more focused around, okay, so what, what do we need to do to care for our patients? And so I think that's the, the thing that is uh, most salient in terms of reinforcing that learning. I think it's also highlighted uh, in some ways just uh, how uh, person dependent we are in so many ways that we don't necessarily have the level of uh, infrastructure or we've resisted the level of infrastructure to do, uh, you know, the kind of teleconferencing that, you know, now is uh, the norm. Uh, we're on it all day long and we find it completely uh, works effectively as opposed to, you know, let's schedule the norm, normal meeting and not get much done. So I think in many ways, um, it's really gonna change our work patterns and it's certainly changing our practice patterns. Uh, you know, when I was in Seattle a long time ago in a prepaid uh, system, uh, when I left, I was leading the care, uh, the care delivery system. Over half of our primary care visits were virtual. Um, but that was the, the product of a lot of work. Well, in the last month, 80% of our, our primary care visits have become virtual. Uh, and, you know, our physicians and our teams are really rising to the occasion, meeting our, our patients' needs in unique ways. But I think we're learning that th those uh, changes aren't so scary uh, we can adapt to them quite capably, uh, and they're effective. And so I think there's a number of things that are going to be fundamental changes to how we think about our healthcare system as we go forward. It will be interesting to see if the state and the federal regulators um, uh, on the other side of this crisis are as adaptable to those changes as, as I think our people <laughs> have proven that they can be, uh, for sure. Well, I think that's a, it's a really good point because, um, you know, I think a, a lot of people have been uh, saying what the, you know, the care delivery system uh, resists the changes that the payers uh, or the risk takers want. Well, one of the things that this has precipitated is the care delivery systems have uh, really embraced and initiated uh, those changes. 
Uh, and so now I think it'll be an interesting conversation, as you say, on the other side of this, about now how do we start to think about reimbursement uh, differently uh, that, as we're informed about our experience here. Indeed. So how do you tackle the broad conundrum uh, from a public health and an economic and leadership perspective of balancing the desire to reopen the economy with the desire to get control over the spread of the virus? wrestle with that conundrum? Well, um, you know, I think one, uh, the science and the math should should guide us. Now, clearly you're talking to a guy uh, who uh, spent too much time in, in math classes, um, but uh, I do think that is crucial because there is a temptation, and I understand it fully, this is a, a huge economic blow, uh, and it's a disproportionate blow to uh, people who, uh, you know, don't make as much money. The challenge is uh, if we uh, try to uh, open things up to, uh, more quickly, what we're going to end up doing is have the, a negative effect in terms of the spread of the disease and the reoccurrence of the disease that actually uh, my belief will be it's going to have a, uh, an even bigger impact uh, economically over the long term. So, uh, I think there's been a lot of um, analogies drawn to World War II, uh, where you're just going to have to suck it up. You're going to have to do what's what it takes uh, and take the economic hit, um, make this as short as humanly possible uh, in terms of its uh, impact. Uh, you know, trust the science, and I uh, believe that we're going to see. Uh, you know, we're early on in this. We're going to see significant improvements in the. Uh, treatment, and I believe we're going to see significant uh, breakthroughs on the uh, prevention side. Um, but we're just going to have to take our licks here for the next uh, month or two, uh, hunker down, get through this, uh, get that R naught below one so this disease dies off for at least this period of time, uh, and trust the science to um, continue to progress so that we are in a better position uh, when there's a reoccurrence. Fantastic. James, thank you uh, for your time and your insights today. I know that uh, we here at Kane Brothers, as well as our listeners, uh, appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate being asked. All righty. Have a good day. Thank you. You too.